All right. Well, um, good morning again, or maybe it's the first time for our late arrivers today. It's all right. No judgment. No judgment. Um, <laughs> or maybe I am judging you. Who knows? Um, you know, one of the things uh, that there's a lot of cultural conversation around, like in our society and um, in our culture in general, uh, revolves around not really the topic, but a, a group of people um, that make up about probably statistically, probably more than half of this room right now, and that would be the ladies. Uh, the, the, the topic of women and women in society, what is their role, what is their responsibility, what are their rights, has been a conversation that we have been having for a long, long time. Um, it was really picked up steam at the turn of the 20th century. Turn of the 20th century, you had first wave feminism, and then second came, and then third, and I think we're into fourth, and people lost count, and not really sure like how they cross over or whatever. But we've been having conversations, right, about uh, equal pay, and about roles, and about harassment. And um, one of the things right now that's a really big kind of cultural conversation is the patriarchy. Like, everything is the patriarchy. In fact, even um, our kind of pop culture references talk about this. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I probably will judge you. I'm not going to ask how many of you saw the Barbie movie, okay? I'm not going to do that. But that is kind of pop culture commentary on the patriarchy. That is what uh, that's about. You, you get into the space of social media. If anybody's on TikTok and watching reels and different things, and there, there's kind of these two extremes. You'll see one that's like hashtag feminism, boss babe. And then on the other side of this, it's hashtag trad wife. And you're like, I don't even know what those things mean. If you have kids, ask them. They'll, they'll tell you. Um, but, but even in, within the church, we've been having this conversation for decades or even centuries in, in some aspects of what, what is the role of women in, in leadership and in ministry and within the church. And, and there's all kinds of conversations that happen in culture and in the church around this topic. And the, the question we, we need to ask, I think, as followers of Jesus, what does the scripture actually say about that? What, what does the Bible actually say about that? Because uh, both sides and all sides will point to certain things in the Bible and say, see, here's what it says. This supports my point and my perspective. That's what we're going to talk about today uh, in the series we've been in. This is the third week of how not to read the Bible. We want you to read the Bible, but we recognize there are some unhelpful and unhealthy ways of doing it. That when we rip things out of context, when we cherry pick verses, you can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say. And so uh, what we've been doing in this series is saying, hey, here's some tools or some guidelines to help us to read and understand the Bible well. Um, and to maybe combat some of these verses that are pulled out of context and some of these things that are claimed about what the Bible says this uh, and, and Christianity is about this. And one of those things that is said um, is that the Bible is uh, anti-women or misogynistic or pro-patriarchy. Um, this is something that gets thrown around. In fact, it, it may be best exemplified by a picture, uh, this picture right here. It's going to come up on the screen, I think, and I hope. Um, the, ah, here we go. There's a truck tailgate. Um, on the back of a Ford Ranger, okay? 1 Corinthians 14.34, women shall be silent and submissive. Read your Bible. And some nice little artwork of some crosses and a Jesus fish. And then God said it, um, believe it. Right? Like, what do we do with that? What do we think about that? This, is, uh, this uh, happened, I think, in 2017, um, and it caused quite a stir. People were really, really mad. First, there was one group of people that, that was really, really mad because they thought that this guy was, like, saying this is a good thing. And people were like, ah! Uh, and then they found out that this gentleman actually describes himself as an atheist and was putting it on there jokingly. And then there was a whole other group of people who were mad, right? So everybody was mad in some way or another. Um, and, and, you know, he did this on purpose. And in fact, local news covered it, and, and he was quoted as saying, I want people to read the Bible. I want them to ask, is this true? He went on to, to say, because it's a hateful, hateful piece of work talking about the Bible, which Christians try to turn around, and then they talk about love. 
hateful, hateful piece of work. The scripture and the Christian faith, it hates women and it's anti-women and on and on. And so the question is, is that true? So what I want to do over our time together today is going to be uh, kind of, again, 30,000 foot. I'm not going to answer all the questions that you may have or give you every single answer. We would be in a series on what does the Bible say about women for probably like six months. Okay, we just, we're going to, I want to give you tools to be able to do this work uh, yourself. And so what I want to do is walk through kind of the biblical timeline, the, the, the overarching arc of the biblical narrative, uh, and, and pull out some principles. And so when we start, we want to start all the way at the beginning. That's a good place to start. This is a graphic that we threw up the first week of the series, if you were here, and it just kind of breaks down the biblical story into six different acts. And act one is where God creates a good world. He brings order and beauty out of the chaos and creates a place where humanity can flourish. Um, we're going to actually go a little bit more in depth into that next week as we ask the question, is the Bible anti-science? And, and how do we reconcile those two things? But uh, act one, right, God creates, and, and, and the world is good, the world is beautiful, it's, it's how he intends it to be, and it is packed full of raw potential for humanity to, to spread the goodness of God. And the first picture that we see of humanity is found in Genesis 1, uh, and then there's a follow-up in Genesis 2. And this should be the groundwork. This should lay the foundation for how we think about a lot of things uh, in our world as we engage who are we as humans, who is God, what is the world like, what are the issues. Those first couple chapters of Genesis lay that out so well. So the first thing that we read about humanity, who, who, who are humans, men, women, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Male and female, in the image of God. There is an equality that is assumed right from the beginning, that both men and women bear the image of God. This is the primary identity of every single human being who ever has lived, ever will live, is someone who is made in the image of God of God. There's an idea that human beings have intrinsic value and worth and dignity. That, 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 and it's not something that we can ever earn. It's not something that we can ever lose. It's not something that somebody can say, you have value, you have worth. No, you have value and worth because you are a human being. You are made in the image of God. This is why Christians are so passionate about like human life is precious from womb to tomb is like the phrase that is used. Because every human being, regardless of age, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of cognitive ability, any standard you have, it doesn't matter. Every human is made in the image of God. This is the primary identity marker of humanity. Like, this is the foundational thing. And so, so in Genesis 1, we see, hey, here is the identity of humanity. And in the next verse, we get to see a little bit of the, of the calling or the vocation of humanity. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's several instructions given. It says that he says to them, be fruitful, increase, fill the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the earth. And we, when we read verse 28, also the verse that precedes 27, so 26, 28, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, what you, what you see is a picture of, of a humanity of God saying, I'm creating you as my image bearers to partner with me to bring beauty and order and flourishing to the creation. I want you to, to rule on my behalf. You are my representatives to the created world. The, 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 the idea is that you know, Eden was kind of created, and it's, it's this garden temple paradise, but it's just one location. The whole earth is full of, packed full of raw potential, and God looks at humans and says, I want you to take my goodness out there. That is the calling that is given to humans, made in the image of God to partner with him to bring his goodness to the world. That is a, an identity and a calling that is given to men and women. 
then you, you turn to Genesis 2, which gives a, kind of another creation account, a different angle, a different picture, and it, it zooms in on kind of humanity specifically. Genesis 2, you see the, the famous, okay, God creates uh, Adam out of the, the dust of the ground. Um, even that is, is a little bit of a, of a play on words. The, the proper name that we say, Adam, uh, is also the Hebrew word Adam, which means humanity. And so when you read about Adam, like there's the, the sense of like it's talking about a specific person, but also representative of all of humanity. That Adam's made out of the dust of the ground, and, and he, he starts fulfilling kind of the, the calling that God has to rule, and, and God gives him this assignment to say, start kind of naming the, the creatures. And, and so Genesis 2, we read that, that the man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every animal, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. And so he's, he's naming these creatures, and it's like, well, there, there's a problem that we're bumping up against, and this is also kind of commentary a few verses later when God's like, or earlier, God's like, it's not good for, for man to be alone. And so there's not, a, there's not a creature that corresponds to human. He's looking at all these different animals and says, well, none of these are like me, and it's not good for me to be alone. I, I need a, a corresponding, a, a partner, someone to, to fit with me. I need a helper. Now, this is where our English kind of gets us into trouble, because it's, I, maybe this is just me, but when I read that, that the man didn't have a helper, and I know this is going to start talking about the creation of woman, this seems a little demeaning to me. Anybody else with me on that? Like, where it's just like, it's, like he's got, it's almost like, oh, like Adam was 98% fine on his own, but he just needed a little bit more to get him over, over the top. Right, like I'm reading this in the translations, like, but for the man, there was no administrative assistant found corresponding to him. Right? That's, that's what our culture has us reading into this. But the word that's used for helper is actually the Hebrew word etzer. The Hebrew word etzer. Th- this word occurs over 20 times in the Old Testament. And it's most often used to talk about God. For example, Psalm 33, 20 says, we wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our etzer. The picture that, is, is, that this word portrays is not, there, there is no inferiority uh, kind of uh, suggested in the word Aitzer. What, what, what's painted is a picture of we can't do this on our own. And so when it says there was no helper for, for the man, it's not simply you know, commentary about Adam needing a wife. It is commentary about it's not good for humanity to be alone. That as men and women, we actually need each other. To fully bear the image of God, it takes both sexes. There's no helper found, and this kind of gets played out and then the following verses as well. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh of that place, and the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. We have the creation of Eve. Our English, again, here doesn't do us much of a favor as the famous kind of rib passage, the rib woman, uh, is just what's stuck in our mind. But the word that gets translated rib, this is the only place that it is ever translated as rib. And again, this is a little bit of a, of a, of a leftover from previous translations. It, it got you know, kind of baked into our memory all the way back at the, the King James Bible and just kind of stayed there. But the word that gets translated rib is the word sella. And every single time I type that, into my, my Word document, it tried correcting it to Tesla every time. And I'm like, Elon, leave me alone, okay? Like, I'm not trying to buy an electric car right now. I'm, I'm trying to look at Hebrew. And so the word Sela is actually better translated as side. In fact, it's a word that primarily in the Old Testament is used as an architectural term to refer to two halves 
of an opposing object, two halves of an opposing structure. It's used to talk about two, like the two sides of like the Ark of the Covenant, two sides of the altar, two sides of the temple. The idea is that there's two kind of equal and opposing sides that when the two of them are put together, you see the whole. And so we get a picture then of humanity in which God creates men and women equal and yet different corresponding and yet different. They each bring something unique to the table, but we need each other. That we cannot fully be the image bearers of God and partner with him if we eliminate and say, this half over here doesn't get to participate. We need each other to be the image of God in the world. This is the original intent and design of God, but it doesn't last very long. It goes off the rails very, very quickly. So we turn the page from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we get into the next part of our biblical timeline, and we enter into the fall. Humanity is given this this calling to to be the image bearers, to represent God to the world, but they're to do it in his definition of good and evil. We we fall in line with what what the creator says, this is what will lead to flourishing, and this is what will lead to destruction, and humanity seizes that autonomy for themselves and say, we want to define good and evil on our own terms. This is represented in, in the Genesis account by this, this tree of, of choosing and the knowledge of good and evil. And humanity reaches out and they, they grab that for themselves. We want to be our own gods. We want to determine right and wrong. And then the fallout happens. And God begins to speak to them, says, here's what the consequences are going to be, the natural consequences of these actions. And he talks about how there's a, a breakdown in the relationship between God and people. There's a breakdown in the relationship between uh, people and the created world. And there's a breakdown in the relationship between people and one another and says specifically to Eve in Genesis 3.16 that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. He will rule over you. From this moment on, our relationships are broken. Now it's a power struggle. Now it's I'm going to get what I want and I don't care what it costs you. So Genesis 1 through 3 presents a picture of how it was supposed to be and how sin messed everything up. Old Testament scholar Dr. John Goldengay puts it this way. He says, the two creation stories, so Genesis 1 and 2, contain no pointers towards male headship in the sense that men or husbands are supposed to exercise authority or leadership over women or wives. But the audience of Genesis knew that patriarchy was a reality of life. So to the ancient peoples, they're like, here's how it was supposed to be, but our reality is domination. And so how do we reconcile that. So Genesis here, chapter 3, tells us that how this came to be, that male authority or domination was not God's design, but a consequence of a breakdown in relationship between humanity and God, between humanity and the animal world, between human beings and one another. And from now on, and this is key, the Bible will assume the reality of patriarchy and of male headship. But it begins by noting that this came about only as a result of the various breakdowns of relationships. And so we have a similar trajectory to what we saw last week with the topic of slavery and what we see in a lot of different areas. There is, there is God's original intent and design. There is the fact that sin messes it up in God. And sometimes this makes us uncomfortable and sometimes we don't like this, but God, he meets humans where they are. Because here's what my design was for you. Here's how you've messed it all up. I will meet you where you are to take you to where I want you to be in a place that leads to flourishing. This is exactly what we see playing out then throughout the Old and the New Testaments. And so as we track along with our kind of biblical timeline from here, we move to Act 3. This is where God calls and chooses and blesses the nation of Israel. 
that he's going to use one particular group of people to bring about the redemption of the world. From the nation of Israel will come the Messiah. And so, so God calls these people, and again, they're in a particular time and place and culture where patriarchy is the norm, and yet God begins to put laws into practice that would undermine that in the ancient world puts things into practice that, that to us, like laws that seem antiquated and seem like, how could you possibly say that? But in the ancient world were protections for women that raised the status and the dignity of women. And then sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, you see women playing key roles of leadership in the nation of Israel. We read about people like Miriam, who was uh, the sister of Moses, who was a part of leading the nation of Israel out of slavery, and she's called a prophet. We read about uh, a lady named Deborah, who was a judge. She was a judge, a prophet, a military leader. She's spoken of with respect and honor in scripture. We read about Huldah, who was a prophet. We read about uh, Abigail's interaction with David and the major part and role that she plays. We read about people like Esther, who rescues her people all throughout the biblical timeline. We see people, we see, we see women given like just this elevated status. And where it comes to a head is in Jesus. We talk about one of our principles is the fact that the entire Bible is pointing to him. It is all about Jesus. We have the written word to reveal to us the word become flesh. Act four, the redemption is provided through Jesus. Jesus' interactions with women in the first century was, I don't even think I can put words around how radical they were, how different they were for that time and that place. Just a, a few examples The first person that Jesus reveals his identity to, his true identity, his identity as the Messiah, as the one who would come to set things right. This was an identity that that he he didn't really come right out and say to very many people. He was usually kind of cryptic about it, and he would teach through parables, and he would do things that showed himself as the fulfillment of this. But the first time where he comes out and says, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that you've been waiting for, he did that, revealed that to a Samaritan woman beside a well in John chapter 4. That there are female followers of Jesus all over the Gospels. And not just followers like, oh, hey, like we're fans, but like a, a part of the group that went with him from village to village and town to town and sat under his teaching and saw the things that, that traveled with Jesus and the disciples, there was this group of women which would have been scandalous at that time. They were a key part of his ministry. Many of them were, are listed as financial supporters of his ministry. And so we read about names like Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary, the mother of James, Susanna, and Joanna. That, that we actually see Mary of the sisters, Mary and Martha. At one point, Luke records in Luke chapter 10 that she is sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. To sit at the feet and learn was a cultural phrase to describe the relationship between uh, a, a disciple and their rabbi or their teacher. It was something that was unheard of. And Martha's actually mad at her sister. She's like, tell her to help me with like the, the, the hosting and stuff. That's what she's supposed to be doing. And Jesus says she's chosen the better thing, to sit here and to learn and to be my disciple. We read that the very first people to witness the resurrected Jesus is a group of women. The resurrection, the keystone event of the entire Christian faith. Without the resurrection, we might as well go home. That Jesus is alive from the dead, that the tomb is empty, is what the whole thing is built on. The first people to witness this are the women at the tomb. And Jesus tells them, hey, go tell the, go tell the disciples, go tell the guys who are you know, hiding in that room back there because they're terrified, go tell them that I'm alive. Jesus elevates just the status of women in the first century in a way that was astounding. And the early church carries on that trajectory. They took what they saw, what they learned from the person of Jesus and begin to bring that into these Jesus communities in the first century Roman Empire. And so we move into Act 5, the mission to the nations. 
the gospel going out, the kingdom advancing. This is the time, as I mentioned in the first week, that we still live in this time today, right? We're waiting for Jesus' return. He's not here yet. We're, we're living in this fifth act of the biblical narrative. And as soon as the, the church begins, we see the key role that, that women play. The first sermon that is preached, the apostle Peter stands up. It's on the day of Pentecost, and they're declaring this gospel that, that the Messiah has come. And uh, there's all these Jews who are in the city of Jerusalem from different areas, and they're all hearing this message in their own language. And to some people, it sounds like gibberish. And they're like, these people, they're drunk. And Peter stands up. And this is one of the best, most overlooked lines in the New Testament. Peter's like, they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> like, Thanks, Peter. But <laughs> like, it's a good reason. But, but then he says, hey, here's what's actually happening. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel about God's spirit being poured out on all people in the last days. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on who? On my servants. Anyone who's following me, anyone who puts their faith in me, anyone who's serving me, like my spirit will come to live within them. And who is that? It's both men and women. And they will prophesy. One of the things about the Christian life that sometimes it gets overlooked. We don't think of that much on a day-to-day basis, that Jesus doesn't just die to forgive us from our sins. That is true. But when we put our faith in him, he also empowers us to live a different kind of life. Like his spirit lives and dwells within us to live differently. And then he, he gives, the spirit gives gifts to everyone who is a follower of Jesus. Gifts that are used to build up the church. Gifts that are used to declare the gospel to the world. If you're in this room or watching online and you have put your faith in Jesus, you have a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts in your life that is something that is outside of you that the Holy Spirit has given you to, to, to serve in the church and to proclaim the gospel to the world. Throughout the the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, these gifts are listed in in a couple of different places, and nowhere is there ever qualification given where it says, these gifts are only for certain people. And so we we read about gifts like administration, which is not a gift that I have, (laughs) Um, apostleship, like lowercase a. There's capital A apostles who are like the 12, but then there's also kind of the, the gift of apostleship. And it's kind of this idea of like spiritual entrepreneurship. Like people just go start kingdom-minded things, plant churches and go on missions trips and start nonprofits and, and push the, the kingdom forward. It's like, we got to go do stuff. It's a gift that's given. The gift of discernment the Spirit gives. The gift of evangelism to declare the gospel. The gift of exhortation, the gift of faith, the gift of giving, the gift of healing, the gift of hospitality, the gift of knowledge, the gift of leadership to lead in the church and in the world, the gift of mercy, the gift of prophecy, the gift of service, of tongues, of teaching of the scriptures, the gift of shepherding or caring for people and walking alongside them on a spiritual journey, the gift of wisdom. The Spirit gives gifts to men and women alike. We see the Apostle Paul come along and, and write to different churches. and one of, the, one of the passages in the New Testament that just fascinates me is Romans chapter 16. Because Romans is known as Paul's like most in-depth theological work where he's just going through like huge theological concepts and he's using all this very, very legal, technical language. And then you get to Romans 16 and it's just like Paul's giving shout outs to people. He's like, I want to tell all the people who've been really important to me and who've, who've been doing this work. Uh, and so let me just list off some of them. And some of the people who've been so important to Paul are various women. Romans 16.1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a deacon of the church in Sancria. And Paul says, I, I commend to you what is thought by the majority of scholars is through that verse and also the way that he talks about these things and the way that letters worked in the first century, that Phoebe is the letter carrier of the letter to the church in Rome. 
letter carriers at that time, it wasn't like the mail, you know, just people like the uh, uh, mail service today, the postal service, where it's just like, here's your letter, you know, bye. It was someone who actually delivered the letter and who then read the letter to uh, that particular group of people. As it was, it was expensive to produce written work, so you didn't produce a lot of copies. A lot of people were illiterate, and so they would take the letter from the letter writer and take it to that group of people, and the letter carrier would read or perform the letter. And because the letter carrier had relationship with the author and with the, the people they were delivering it to, the letter carrier would then answer questions that the audience had. Hey, what did Paul mean when he said this here in you know, chapter four? Well, they didn't have chapters, but you know that, that section right here. What did, what did Paul mean when he said this? And, and it would have been on Phoebe then to explain that. And so the first person to read and explain and teach through the letter to the Romans was likely Phoebe. We read in verse 3, a, a couple that is named husband and wife, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. You see Priscilla and Aquila mentioned several times in the New Testament. Priscilla is always mentioned first, which for a husband-wife duo would have been strange in the first century, unless she was kind of the primary point person in terms of uh, what was going on in the church and the teaching in those areas. Verse 7, we read that Paul wants to greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. And so Paul's like, yeah, tell Andronicus and Junia, they've been following Jesus longer than I have. They are outstanding. They are apostles. And Junia is a woman's name. Um, some of our older translations have Junius. They put an S on the end of that. And there are some manuscripts that have that. But our oldest manuscripts and the most reliable manuscripts have Junia. And in fact, in first century like Greco-Roman writings, the name Junius, which is a, a masculine name, is nowhere in any Greek writings. But the name Junia is all over the place. It's a common name in the first century Roman Empire. And so we have a trajectory of the scriptures that begins with men and women equal and but yet different, but equipped by God and called by God to be his image bearers. Sin messes that all up, and God begins to put things on a trajectory to bring it back to his original intent. Jesus shows up and just supercharges that, and he elevates the status of women in that society, and the church says, that's what we're going to do too. And you see women serving in Paul's churches, doing important things. And so all of that then, to get us back to the Mr. Pickup Truck verse guy, what do we do with that then? Because the very same Paul that wrote Romans and says, hey, here's a shout out to these people who talks about the spiritual gifts and, and, and seems to elevate the status of women, the very same Paul says this, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. I'm like, what? How do we reconcile those two things? See, it's, here, here's the thing. There's a problem somewhere. And what I want us to see this is anytime we read the Bible and we come across the problem, the question isn't whether that's, that's a problem. The question is, wh where's the location of it? I either say there's a problem with what Paul is saying, and I ignore everything else in the rest of the context of Scripture, or I go, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to match with the rest of Scripture, so maybe there's a problem with my interpretation of it. When we look at the context, when we look at the literary structure and all these different things. This is one of two passages in the New Testament where Paul says something similar. We have this here in 1 Corinthians. We have a similar passage in 1 Timothy where Paul's like, women, just be quiet, be silent, be submissive. But given what we know about the rest of the story and the trajectory, it would not appear as though Paul is just putting an all-out ban on women speaking in churches. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? Let's we think about some of our tools, right? What, what, what's, where does this fit in the overall story of Scripture, right? We've been talking about that in this message. What kind of literature is this? Our first principle we talk about in this series is that the Bible is a library, not a book. So what genre is this? It's a letter written to the church in Corinth. 
So Paul's addressing a specific group of people at a specific time about some specific issues. And if you've ever read through the letter to like first or second Corinthians, the Corinthian church had some issues. They, had, they were fighting over leadership divisions in the church. They were, there was disorder in the worship service. In fact, this particular passage falls right in a section where Paul's like talking about order in the worship service. Um, some are taking communion while others are being left out. They would share a meal together, and some people were, were getting the meal because they were there first. Other people were coming later, probably because they, they worked like lower-class jobs, and they would get there, and the food was all gone, so they were going hungry. There were people getting drunk off the communion wine, which is why we use grape juice. Just saying, that's not really, but, but like there's a lot going on in that church. And Paul's like, okay, I, I, I got to sort through some of this stuff. Paul wants to correct the issues. He wants to get people to unity. He wants to get people to order. And so those are things we got to keep in, in mind. And so it's like, well, maybe Paul is writing something specific to that time, to that place that makes sense to them. That isn't the same thing we read when we read women should be silent in the churches. The context of the letter, we talked about the context of the, kind of the whole story, but within the context of the letter, if you go back three chapters to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about head coverings, women wearing head coverings in the church, which is another cultural thing that's a whole bag of worms, but the context in which he speaks about them, he says that when women pray and prophesy, they should wear head coverings. Paul assumes that women will be speaking in the church gathering, and so he can't assume that in chapter 11 and then say, nah, just kidding, in chapter 14. Two chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, talk, Paul talks about people using their gifts in the church. He makes no distinction between men and women, and some of those gifts involve speaking in the church. And so whatever Paul is saying here cannot mean sit there, be quiet, be submissive, don't speak, go home. There's some cultural context that we're missing. It seems likely that Paul's command refers to a specific cultural practice, uh, and there have been, there's been a lot of work on passages like this to try to figure out what that is, and different scholars have different theories. I'm going to share with you one, and this is the one I find the most compelling in terms of what is Paul referring to. But like I said, there are others, and you can do this research on your own as well. It was a common custom during that time that if you were uneducated on a particular topic, and if you were like a student, you did not comment and you did not ask questions of a teacher. Um, it was, it broke etiquette, it broke the norms. You just, you sat there and you learned uh, in silence. This wasn't just in the church, this was in uh, Greek culture, the Greek orator Socrates, Jewish culture, Rabbi Akiba, both are contemporaries of the Apostle Paul. Both of them have writings that talk about they do not permit their students to talk while they are teaching, right? So there's this thing going on, and in that context, the idea of being silent then doesn't refer to never speak. The idea of being silent means to adopt a quiet demeanor that is appropriate for students in that culture. Similarly, the term submission then does not refer, refer to inferiority, but it refers to a posture of humble learning, of saying, you know what, I'm a student, they're the teacher, in humility I will sit and I will learn. This was the cultural norm of that time. And then you get into what Paul says about, hey, ask your husband. Again, in that time, in that culture, men were generally more well-educated. With that understanding, then, Paul is giving this instruction. Hey, ladies, we need order in the worship service. So if you have questions, if you have comments, it's not culturally appropriate for you to just be blurting things out. That's not how our culture does things. Go home, have a conversation with your husband. Then when you learn, the next time you come back, you can be part of this conversation. One New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, summarizes it well when he says this, that Paul's two comments, talking about here in 1 Corinthians and also talking about 1 Timothy, Paul's two comments about silence are actually consistent then with the story and the plot of the Bible. 
Women who have always been gifted by God to speak for God and lead God's people were doing those things in Paul's churches. But women who had not yet learned the Bible or theology or had not yet learned to live a Christian life were not to become teachers until they had learned orthodox theology. And so that's where we find ourselves in Act chapter 5. Where we find ourselves today is in Act 5, waiting for Act 6, waiting for Jesus to return. And when Jesus returns, he will redeem everything. The things will reset to the original intent of how it was meant to be before sin and evil polluted our good world. Things will go back to the original intent, including the relationship between the sexes. You could look at the, the story of Scripture just in terms of male-female relationship by this particular graphic Equality in the beginning, equality in the end, right? What was true of God's design in the beginning will be true in the end. And here's the thing for us. What was true in the beginning, what will be true in the end is how the church is called to live in the present. As followers of Jesus, that's how we live. We're we're called exiles, right? We're supposed to be exiles. We're not exiles in place. We're exiles in time. Because this is our home. We live here. Like physically, this is the space that we belong to. But in time, we belong here. It's like we're, we're made for the, the end. We're made for new creation. We're made for the new heavens and the new, new earth. We are called to live now what will be true then. And what will be true then and what was true, what God's design was, equality between men and women. And the church is called to live like that and fight for that and champion that. Now here's the caveat. And this is the part that nobody likes. There is room within the church to disagree about what that looks like practically. There is room to disagree about, okay, how do we actually live this out? You have two terms that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't. We're going to go over them just real quickly, is the idea of of complementarian versus egalitarian. Complementarian is on one end of the spectrum that says men and women are absolutely equal in value and dignity, yes, but there are specific roles that are for men, there are specific roles that are for women. Egalitarian is on the other end of the spectrum that says completely equal in in, in value and dignity, but then there's also, like, anybody can do anything as far as roles go, and there's 80,000 positions in between different shades of that. There's room to disagree on how we play this out and how this, this works within the church, but what there is not room to disagree on and what we, we have to be unified on is what we are striving for is equality. What we are striving for is, is, is God's original design. And so here's what that means real practically. As a church and as followers of Jesus, we treat everyone like they are made in the image of God. That, that nobody is any better than anybody else. Everyone is made in the image of God, men and women alike. We, what, what also, we also do is within the church is we give people opportunities to exercise their God-given gifts. To, to build the church up and to proclaim the gospel to the world. As we engage with culture and the world around us, as followers of Jesus, that we speak up and we fight for the fair treatment of women, that when women are degraded or treated as less than, we say something about it. When culture produces things that they parade as art that degrades women, we say something about it. When men treat women like property, we say something about it. When women will portray themselves in that way, we say something about it. We proclaim it with a message of love and grace that says, you are so much more. You are someone who's made in the image of God. Christ has died to redeem you. He wants his spirit to live within you. He wants to call you a daughter of the king. That's who you are. That is the posture that we take. Is the Bible misogynistic? Is, Is the Bible patriarchal? Does it support the patriarchy? No. Will you find patriarchy within the pages of scripture? Yes, because that was the culture. We look at the trajectory that Jesus has us on. And so, 
next week. We're going to get into, is the Bible anti-science? You have to check your brain at the door to be a follower of Jesus. For now, let me pray for you. We'll close out with a song. God, thank you so much for loving us how you do. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we have this awesome honor and privilege of being able to say that we are made in your image. Um, God, we recognize that that image is fallen, it is broken, it is corrupted. Um, but Jesus, we praise you that you came to redeem that in us. Uh, that, that Jesus, you, you showed up. God, the, the God-man became, Jesus, God became flesh, walked among us, showed us what it looks like to love God, to love neighbor, died for our sins, rose from the dead. We praise you for that, Lord, so that we can have a hope and a future. God, I pray that we would be people that just live out your kingdom vision around us, that point people to your goodness, that declare this, this beautiful message that all are made in the image of God. Christ has died for everyone. Come to a relationship with him through faith. So Lord, would you empower us through your spirit to proclaim that message, to live that truth in our own lives. We pray this in his name, amen.